Well, as we've uh, jumped into the book of Hebrews here, it's good to take stock and to remember how the author has opened this book. Uh, He's opened it with a contrast. Right there in the beginning, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. That contrast between the way God used to speak, the way God has spoken, and the way He has now spoken is sort of the basic message of the entire book, actually. The theme, the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the main theme of the book of Hebrews. It runs throughout And the superiority of the new covenant brought by Jesus is highlighted at every point. And so as we turn here and look more deeply at the contrast between angels and the Son, you heard it there in the passage, it continues from what we saw last week, right, beginning in verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and then he says some stuff about the Son, God never said that about angels, and then uh, now in verse 7, but of the angels he says this, but of the Son he says that, and to which of the angels has he said this, and are they not that? That's the back and forth rhythm of the opening chapter of Hebrews. There's this, the, the, the heart of it is to say that the Scriptures have always expressed, not just in the New Covenant, but in the Old Covenant itself, the supremacy of the Son. And so, I think that this is maybe a little bit more difficult for us in the modern world. I suspect that in the first century, it seems from what we can see in the New Testament, what we see in other literature, that there was a great fascination with angels, perhaps an over-fascination with angels. We read in the book of Colossians, for example, that um, people were tempted to worship angels. Whereas I think in the modern world, our problem is actually maybe a little bit in a different direction. I would guess that for many of us, perhaps most of us, we hardly ever think about angels. We said this at the, uh, around Christmas time, right? Our Christmas hymns are filled with angels. Christmas is the one time when we're like, hey, angels, they're, they're a thing. But uh, I was talking to Pastor Max this morning, and he said, hey, they didn't stop singing just because it ain't Christmas, you know? Like, angels are still doing their stuff even now. And so, what I want to do uh, in this message is to give a brief overview of angels. What, what does the Bible have to say about angels? And I hope that the reason is, is you can't really understand why it's so great that Jesus is better than them if you don't know what them is. And then, having given a brief overview of angels, we'll look at the Son and what Hebrews finds in the Psalms about Christ. So he goes back to the Old Testament, he looks in the Psalms, and he finds things about angels and about the Son and he contrasts them, and I'll close with a few words of application. And this is hard. There's, there really isn't application in today's passage. The application's coming next week. You look in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, that's when we're going to get to the application, at least the application that this author thought that that audience needed to hear. But perhaps there might be a few other things that this audience needs to hear from these same passages. So let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Lord, we know that we've come to Mount Zion, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's true. Every time we gather for worship, we come to that mountain. Not the old mountain, not the Mount Sinai in Arabia, not the mountain that had the fire and the smoke, not the mountain that can be seen and touched. We come to an invisible mountain, and it's one that's inhabited by innumerable angels, uncountable angels. 
And so give us grace, Lord, to see with the eyes of faith what your word has to say about reality, about the world which we inhabit. We ask for that grace now in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are angels? Angels are, in the Bible, personal spirits of great power and might. They are immortal and they're invisible. We see this in passages like Luke chapter 20 or Colossians 1.16. We find in the Gospels from Jesus that they neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor do they multiply by procreation. Angels, in that sense, are almost, this is an odd thought, perhaps, maybe you think, we think of angels as sort of a class, but if the Scriptures are right, and when they say they don't marry or give in marriage, it means that every angel is sort of distinct. Unlike you and I, who can trace our lineage back to our parents and our grandparents and all the way back to Father Abraham and then Father Adam, there's a genealogical connection between every one of us if we go back far enough. Angels, it seems, are not like that. They don't have that genealogical connection back to some common ancestor, some great angel, you know, the first angel ever made who then was the father of all the other angels. Instead, the picture we seem to get in the Scriptures is that angels were created, we think, all at once and as they are. And they're immortal and invisible. They don't have flesh and bone as men and beasts do. We're told that in the Gospel of Luke when the disciples think Jesus might be a ghost or an angel. And he says, no, 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 I've got flesh and bone, which means they don't. But we find in the Scriptures that they regularly manifest themselves in visible and bodily form, and they can interact with physical reality. They regularly do. We also know that they're not omnipresent, like angels aren't everywhere, meaning a single angel doesn't have access to all of reality all at once in the way, for example, that God does. Nor are angels all-knowing. Sometimes they may have greater intelligence than us. They may know more, far more than we know about many things. But they don't know all things. We know this because when the angel Michael appears to Daniel in that book, he tells him that when Daniel started to pray, Michael was dispatched to help him, and he got held up in Persia. The prince of Persia resisted him, and that's why here we are 20 days later or something like that, and Michael finally shows up, which implies, again, that angels move from one place to another place. And then again, in the book of 1 Peter, we're told that there are things into which angels long to look, meaning they don't know everything. The incarnation, it seems, they were aware, it seems, that there was some prophecy about some Messiah, and they were aware of those sort of things, but they didn't know the times and the seasons. They, they were things into which angels longed to look, things which angels didn't know. Christmas, perhaps, was a surprise to them as much as it was to those shepherds. When angels appear in Scripture, the most common human response is what? Awe and fear. When angels show up, these are not the fat, chubby babies of our popular imagination, but these are beings of great power and might. Even the holiest men fall on their faces and are tempted to worship them. We find that in the book of Revelation where John encounters an angel, falls on his face, begins to worship, and he says, hey, knock it off. I am a servant just like you. Angels are personal. They aren't merely forces or impersonal powers. They communicate. They act. They are moral beings. We're told that some spirits obey God. 
where others do not. Evil spirits are at war with God and with men, and they are able to influence and oppress people, both physically and psychologically. The Bible uh, alludes throughout the Scriptures to various kinds of what we talk about as angels. The word angel itself just means one who is sent. But the Bible alludes to sort of different classifications under that category of angels. So, for example, there are the cherubim. You've probably heard that word. We encounter them first in the book of Genesis. They're essentially throne guardians. In, in Genesis 3, they guard the way to the tree of life. Images of cherubim line the Holy of Holies and uh, the, the temple complex um, above the Ark of the Covenant. We were just in Leviticus. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? On top of that mercy seat are two cherubim with, with wings that sort of fold over, which basically form the throne upon which the glory cloud would sit. When prophets see visions of the heavenly throne room throughout the Scriptures, these cherubim, these living creatures, are represented as they're, they're manifested, whether they have this all the time or not, we don't know, lots of things we don't know, uh, of certain beasts, characteristics of certain beasts, like a lion, eagles, leopards, and so forth. And then also, not just the cherubim, we find the seraphim. They show up in one passage in particular, uh, Isaiah 6. That word seraphim likely means the burning ones. And these are winged spirits surrounding God's throne, uttering, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Paul, in his epistles in various places, mentions spiritual powers and classifies them as thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, principalities. And many theologians have thought these sort of identify perhaps different classifications of angels that have different roles in God's plan. What those particulars are, we may not know in detail, but there's, a, there's at least allusion and reference to these beings have jobs, they have roles to play. At least two angels we find are named in Scripture, Michael and Gabriel. As I said, the word angel itself just means one who is sent, and throughout the Bible we see these spiritual beings performing various tasks as God's representatives. So for example... We frequently see them doing things like worshiping God, the cherubim, the seraphim especially, with that holy, 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 or the heavenly choir at Christ's birth, or the angelic hosts in the book of Revelation. One of the fundamental things that angels do is praise and worship God. We also find that they act as God's messengers, bringing His Word to His prophets. The Bible often speaks of a heavenly council or a court filled with angels, and at times the prophets, where the prophets will be invited. There's a passage in 2 Kings in which um, the prophet Micah is sort of invited into the heavenly council, and God is engaging with angels, and both holy angels and lying spirits present in that same council. Kind of blow your mind a little bit there. See a similar thing in the book of Job when Satan comes into the presence of God in order to make his accusations. So there's this heavenly court, and angels are assembled there to basically receive orders from God Himself. We find, of course, in the Bible that angels are agents of uh, of justice and judgment. Think about the book of Exodus and the Passover when the angel of death brings judgment on Egypt, or the book of Revelation when angels are the ones uh, who bring God's judgment there. Some of their titles, again, dominions, thrones, and rulers, imply that they have some sort of governing authority in the cosmos. They're ruling, they're dominating, they have dominion. 
They rule and reign over various aspects, perhaps, of God's creation as His emissaries, including maybe men. The Scriptures frequently link angels to the stars. In fact, that phrase, you've probably heard it, heavenly host. To what does it refer? Well, depending on what passage you're in, it could refer simply to the stars. Look at the heavenly host, the sun, the moon, the heavenly host, the stars of heaven. But another passage is quite clear that the heavenly host is the angelic armies which surround God's throne. But perhaps one of the most important functions, and certainly the most important function for the author of Hebrews, is that angels were the ones who mediated God's law in the Old Testament. Multiple times, the New Testament offers tell us that the law was put in place through angels. So Galatians, Paul says that. Here in Hebrews 2, we're going to see, look at just very next fast, you can see it. Uh, Hebrews 2, 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So that message declared by angels is the Old Testament, is the law. And so to summarize here, what do we have when we have our basic understanding of angels? Bible teaches us that the cosmos, the reality in which we inhabit, is filled with innumerable spiritual beings of great power and might, some good and some evil, and they interact with and influence history and human affairs. They're not simply in their own sort of realm doing their own thing, though that may be true as well, but they also intersect with human reality. Faithful angels are God's agents, gladly fulfilling His purposes. Fallen angels, though in rebellion, are ultimately under His control and fulfill His purposes despite their rebellion. In other words, the Scriptures from the beginning to end teach us that there is an entire spiritual world operating behind the scenes and intruding into visible reality in various ways all the time. Think of maybe one last thing to hear to, to get the picture. You remember the story of Elisha when the armies of Syria surrounded the city and his servant was dismayed because there's more of them than there are of us. And Elijah said, wait a minute, Lord, would you open his eyes for just a sec? And the, the man, the servant's eyes are open and he sees, here's the city surrounded by the armies of Syria and surrounding them is innumerable chariots and horses with angelic riders. The enemy army was itself surrounded by an army of the Lord of hosts. So, there's angels. So, when we come to this passage and we're contrasting the sun with the angels, look at what the author to Hebrews highlights. Verse 7, of the angels, what does God say? He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Now here, of course, we're contrasting with the words about the sun, which we're going to see in a moment. But the author is really keying in, in that passage, on a few particular words. And they show up again in verse 14. This is a little bit hard to see in English because your English Bible translates one of the words differently, which doesn't help you to see what he's doing. But look here. In uh, the phrase in verse 14, ministering spirits. You see that phrase? There's two words. That word minister... And the word minister in verse 7 is, the same, is related to the same word. One's a noun, one's a verb, or an adjective. 
Ministering and minister is the same word. And then that word wind in verse 7 and the word spirit is the exact same word. That's the one that's harder to see unless you know that in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit and the word for wind is the same word. The word pneuma, you've probably maybe heard that word around. So the word pneuma or pneumata here, it's plural, is both wind and spirit. And so when the author of Hebrews reads that passage, he's connecting it to what he says later as the ministering spirit sent out to serve. God makes his angels to be spirits and his ministers who are sent out to serve for our sake. Now, that's at least what he's doing, is he's connecting the role of angels as ministering spirits. But he may be doing, I think he probably is more than this. Like if you go back and you read the original context, Psalm 104, where that passage is taken from, it's clearly talking about wind and fire. He's just talking about creation. So we find there, uh, God covers himself with light as with a garment. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And then we find he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And as modern people, here's what our tendency is. Our tendency at that point is to regard that statement as just a metaphor. Angels are like the wind because they're invisible, like the wind is. Or because the wind is ephemeral. It's here today and then it blows away. It comes and it goes. And God's ministers are like fire and that fire burns up and then disappears. And then this is in contrast with the sun who in the next verse has a throne that is forever and ever. It abides. And I think there's something to that. Part of the contrast here is sort of that ephemeral angels are made and they're here and gone and God's throne, Christ's throne, abides forever. However, I want us to be a little slower to reduce things to just a metaphor. There's a whole modern way, a mindset of framing reality that is really myopic and narrow. Because we live, right, in an age of scientific reductionism where physical causes material causes are regarded, regarded as the only real causes. If you want to say what's, what's really happening there, you're going to describe the physical realities, the material, the chemical, the biological, the physical. And our entire modern world sort of reinforces that reduction. It constantly catechizes us into what some philosophers aptly call nothing buttery. A star is nothing but a ball of flaming gas. You are nothing but a bag of protoplasm. Love is nothing but a chemical reaction in your brain. That's the modern mindset, that reductionism. And I simply want to raise the question here from Hebrews 1 and Psalm 104, what if that really isn't just a metaphor? What if he really does make his angels winds? Like the book of Jonah says that when the prophet fled from his mission, God hurled a storm at him, threw the storm after Jonah. What if the storm had a name like Gabriel or Michael? We name hurricanes. What if God does too? What if he really does make his angels wins? Now, I'm not saying that every time the wind blows, that's an angel going by you, okay? 
That's not, that's not where we're going. But what I am trying to do is enlarge your imagination a little bit based on the way that the Bible talks, that angelic beings, innumerable ones, like ones you can't count, inhabit the same reality that you inhabit and interact with it. But Joe, we know how hurricanes are formed. Like warm ocean air rises into clouds and it creates areas of low pressure. I looked this up. I did not know this before the sermon. (laughs) Warm ocean air rises into clouds. It creates areas of low pressure, causes more air to rush in and then rise and cool, which leads to rain, which creates more warm ocean air and more low pressure until the air really begins to rush in and swirl. That's science, not angels. But why would those be mutually exclusive? Like, you have a spirit, right? An invisible aspect of your being. And what does that invisible aspect of your being do? It makes use of chemicals, like the ones in your brain, neurotransmitters. The spiritual and the physical in you don't cancel each other out. And so could winds, clouds, fire have something similar underneath them? What if, the, had this, what if the regularities that we observe in nature aren't owing merely to impersonal laws of nature, but to the fact that holy angels are really, really obedient? There's more to be said about that modern tendency. I'll leave it aside for now. But in a few weeks, about a month actually, February 23rd, I'm going to be giving a lecture at the North Church. It's formerly the church formerly known as Bethlehem's North Campus, uh, as a part of a lecture series, and it's called On Puddleglum's Faith, Breaking the Dark Enchantments of the Modern World. And I'm going to be elaborating on some of the, what I just said there. So there'll be more information coming about that, maybe in an email. But for now, I want to come back to Hebrews. The main contrast here is between angels who are made and who serve and the Son who has an eternal throne and who laid the foundation of the earth and whose years have no end. That's the main contrast that this author wants us to see. He made, God makes his angels wins, but the throne of the Son is forever and ever. He wasn't made. Angels are creatures. The Son is not. And so to make this contrast, here's where it gets puzzling. The author draws from Psalm 45 and Psalm 102 and claims that those passages are talking about Christ. And so how can he do that? How is he reading his Old Testament? Well, let's look at Psalm 45 kind of as the one we'll focus on especially. Psalm 45 is a royal psalm. Uh, You can go back if you want to on the city's website. You can find, we've preached through the psalms for the last few summers. Pastor Jonathan preached on Psalm 45. Uh, It begins with, I address my verses to the king. And it describes him this way. So listen to who is being talked about here. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Later in the psalm, it celebrates the marriage of the king to a queen. It says, at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir, which is a place where Solomon got his gold. And then she is exhorted to leave her father's house and fully be joined to the king who desires her beauty. So here's the basic thing here. This is clearly a human being, a son of man. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. He has a wife, 
But then, in the middle of this passage, we have this really strange thing. So, here's a king with a wife standing by his side, and then right in the middle, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here's the issue there, right? Do you hear it? Here, someone is addressed as God, and then that person is said to have a God. You got that? Like, there's two gods here. Your throne, O God, is everlasting, and therefore, God, your God. And you're going, well, how, wait, how many, how many gods do we have? This is the Bible still, right? That monotheistic book? Now, some people, some scholars might want to say, hey, this is messianic hyperbole. Got that? Messianic hyperbole. This is messianic exaggeration. It's talking about a messianic figure, a human figure with a wife, and it's exaggerating his qualities sort of to be impressive. Maybe. We see similar sorts of things perhaps in other passages. Um, Exalted language. Think about Isaiah 9. Think about, we just came through Christmas. This is the Christmas text. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Later in that passage, he talks about uh, he will establish the throne of David. So here we have a child born in the Davidic line, a human being. And yet, in the middle of that passage, we find this. What's his name? Well, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And we go, cool. (laughs) Mighty God. And we go, huh. Everlasting Father. I thought this kid just got born. And Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So just hyperbole? Is this simply nothing but messianic exaggeration? Maybe. Until the hyperbole becomes reality. When Jesus arrives, we clearly see that passages like Psalm 45 and Isaiah 9 and Deuteronomy 32, which Pastor David explored last week, aren't merely hyperbole. There is a human king, a son of man, born to a woman, but that son of man is truly the eternal son, the one who laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, whose throne is from everlasting to everlasting, and whose years will have no end. This is what the Old Testament was saying hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. Consider the final quotation in this passage from Psalm 110. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus himself uses this passage to stump the Pharisees in Matthew 22. He says, the Pharisees are gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. They'd been asking him. He said, I got a question, guys, since we're doing Q&A. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees go, oh, we know the answer to this one. (laughs) Of course. That's easy, Jesus. The son of David. It's pretty clear from the Old Testament that the Messiah will be the son of David. And Jesus says, okay. How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? And of course, at this point, the Pharisees say, 
and walk away, and nobody asks Jesus any more questions. But note the argument Jesus is making. David wrote the psalm, and David says that the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. So the Messiah here is both David's son and David's Lord. How can that be? We don't see it clearly until Jesus, the eternal son, born in David's line. David's descendant and David's superior. And so here's the deal. Just as we must not reduce wins to merely physical causes, we must not reduce the Messiah to merely his human origins. Yes, he is the son of Mary and the adopted son of Joseph. But the Old Testament promises and the New Testament confirms that the Messiah is a man and more than a man. More even than an angel. The things that God says about the Messiah could not be said of any human being or any angelic being. Christ is supreme over the angels. Now, next week, Pastor Kenny is going to unpack where this author is taking that truth. Like, what's the therefore in light of that? And then the following week, uh, I think it's Kenny again, we'll discuss the relationship between Christ and the angels in chapters 2, verses 5 to 9. So we're not going to be done with angels uh, just after today. And just in anticipation of that, I just want to plant a little seed here for your reflection, okay? And it's a tension in the Bible. Last week, Pastor David mentioned that the Bible gives us a kind of order of being. Remember this? Like God's at the top, and then under God is the angels, and then under angels are human beings, and under human beings are men, or, uh, beasts, God, angels, men, beasts. There's kind of an order, a ranking of like superiority, okay? Um, and this is humans reign over animals. We see that in Genesis 1 or Psalm 8. And then angels are over humans. Angels, it seems, uh, reign over the nations. We've said they influence the course of history. God gives the law through angels. And this makes sense because angels are beings of great power and might. They see the face of God. They act as his agents. Man is made lower than the angels. Got that? But then you have this verse 14 thing where all of a sudden angels are sent out to serve for your sake, for our sake. And so angels in that sense become sort of our servants, servants for our good. So they're, are they over us or are they below us? Does that make sense? Are they, are they our superiors or are they the ones who are serving us who are the superiors? How does this work? I just want you to ponder that for the next few weeks and see what we see in Hebrews. But for now, let me just note three ways that I think we can be encouraged by this chapter. This isn't the application this author makes, but it's one maybe that we need today. First, I think we ought to recognize the place of angels in God's works. Like modern people need reminders that there is more in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies. Our earthly problems, here's why this is important. Our earthly problems often feel really, really big. The visible, physical things feel really, really big. It can be helpful to remember that there is an entire spiritual world operating and things are happening there which you don't see but impact what you see. Reminding ourselves of the invisible realm, the battles happening there and the praises happening there can help to sort of recalibrate us. And, and I don't mean that I want all of us to go become obsessed with angels or demons. It's not it. But I do mean it would be something like this. It's good and right for you to welcome and even to seek the service of God's ministering spirits. 
I regularly pray when I put my kids to bed that God would send his mighty angels in flames of fire to guard my house and my children. I pray that a lot. And you could ask a question here, right? But Joe, why don't you just ask God himself to guard your house and your kids? Like, why bring angels into it at all? And the answer is, because I don't want to be holier than God. I don't want to be more spiritual than Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that God will command his angels concerning you so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The psalmist praises God for the activity of faithful angels. Praise the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Jesus, when he was tempted, you remember in the desert after the devil left him, do you remember what helped him? It was angels came and ministered to him. In the garden of Gethsemane, at his lowest moment, facing death, trying in agony to deal with the fact that he was facing the evil of men and the wrath of God the very next day. What does the Bible tell us? He was strengthened by the appearance of an angel. So I just think, if it's good enough for Jesus, then man, is it good enough for me? Later in the Hebrews, this author is going to tell us that, hey, you really should work on your hospitality, be hospitable, because sometimes people have entertained angels unawares. And so recognizing and acknowledging the role of angels is a real part of the biblical vision of reality. And so keep both of these in view. Angels are real, Jesus is better. Number two. Didn't spend much time here, but I want to apply this. Let the loves and hates of Jesus shape yours. Catch that in that passage from Psalm 45? Talking about the Son, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. There are things that Jesus loves, and there are things that Jesus hates. And he has embedded knowledge of those loves and hates in our consciences, every one of us, and then reinforce them and express them clearly in his word. The loves of God and the hates of God, the loves of Christ and the hates of Christ are both very manifest here and here. And yet we're sinners and we suppress the truth. We exchange it for a lie. We know God's decree that those who practice such things are deserving of death, and yet We do the opposite anyway, and we celebrate it. And so here's the deal. It takes gracious effort on our part to cultivate our loves and our hates. And I'm stressing both on purpose because modern modern world, hate's still all over the place, but there's a, a sense sometimes that Christians have that like we should focus on the things that we love but not the things that we hate. And I'm wanting to say he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Earlier this week at, uh, at Bethlehem College and Seminary Chapel, we sang an arrangement of Psalm 125. So we put, the, it's a psalm set to music, just straight through. Here's how Psalm 125 goes, and it's connected to something that I saw in here. So it was like, oh, providential, bring it together. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. 
As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. And the connection that I made was that psalm refers to a scepter of wickedness. This passage refers to Christ's scepter as a scepter of righteousness. Get that? Scepter of righteousness, scepter of wickedness. And one of the dangers, according to Psalm 125, of living beneath a wicked scepter, a wicked rule, is that ungodly law shapes even the righteous so that they stretch out their hand to do what's evil. Like it, it shapes it. You, don't, you no longer love, the law says it's okay, so it must be okay, right? That's how law works. It teaches, it instructs, it shapes. That's why law matters. And the reality is we live under some wicked rulers. You know this probably, but just this week, the Minnesota legislature is considering bills that will expand abortion access for any reason up until birth and remove waiting periods and parental consent notifications and even deny medical care to children who survive abortions. They've also queued up bills that would enable the state to seize custody of children from parents if they deny gender-affirming care. That would outlaw efforts of counselors to help minors and vulnerable adults as they wrestle with their sexuality. You try to steer them in a biblical direction, can't do that. And that would mandate that schools teach children about the spectrum of sexuality. Be clear here, right? These are wicked laws established by a scepter of wickedness. And Christ loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And so what should we do? Well, we should remember, we live under his scepter, not theirs, ultimately. And that when we trust in the Lord and we seek to calibrate our loves and hates by his loves and hates so that we're upright in heart, and from that faith and upright heart, we seek the face of God and we ask him, Lord, do good to us and to our families, our city, our state, our nation. And we ask the Lord to establish justice for the weakest and most vulnerable members of society and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do so because we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Finally, because Christ perfectly and completely loved righteousness and hated wickedness, it says here, therefore God anointed him with the oil of gladness. Now, according to the book of Acts... Acts chapter 10, the oil of gladness here is the Holy Spirit. Like what Jesus was anointed with is the Holy Spirit who descended upon him and empowered him for his ministry. And then, this is the beautiful thing, is that Jesus turns around after receiving the Holy Spirit and what does the first thing he does with that Holy Spirit? He gives it to us. This is what Pentecost is all about. He pours out the oil of gladness upon us. And so in the face of the great evils that we face, both the ones out there and the ones in here, the joy of Jesus, rooted in the gospel of Jesus, anchors us in his rule and in his reign. Which brings us to the table. Now this table, I want you to marvel that Jesus doesn't change. Here at the beginning, you heard it, right? 
you are the same and your years will have no end. I'll just say this. You probably remember this verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to land on that note too. So from the beginning of this book until the end, when we get to the end in December or whenever it is, right? From beginning to end, we come to this table to remember he's the same. Day to day, month to month, year to year, he is the same. The same Christ of mercy and grace who welcomes us into his presence. God does make his angels wins, but here he makes his enemies his footstool. And so we eat this meal because Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty and invites us to his throne. Father, I pray, help us, Lord, to see with the eyes of faith to see all of reality and not just some of reality, to love what you love and to hate what you hate. And now, Lord, at this table, would you comfort us that you have welcomed us in the name of your son, Jesus, who is far greater than the mightiest of angels. In his name we pray, amen.